You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. The McGovern Defense Plan. He would cut the Marines by one-third, the Air Force by one-third. He'd cut Navy personnel by one-fourth. He would cut interceptor planes by one-half, the Navy fleet by one-half, and carriers from 16 to 6. Senator Hubert Humphrey had this to say about the McGovern proposal. It isn't just cutting into the fat. It isn't just cutting into manpower. It's cutting into the very security of this country. President Nixon doesn't believe we should play games with our national security. He believes in a strong America to negotiate for peace from strength. He's continuing the bombing, not to get our men out of prison, but to keep General Tu in power. And that's a price I'm not willing to pay. Let me just add one thing. One of the great problems that we've had in the leadership of this country is that we have had too many people that were unwilling to change their mind when they got new evidence. They, they were afraid they'd lose face, and so they wouldn't change. Now, I think we need a president who isn't afraid to say, I'm going to change my mind. I made a mistake. And sometimes you ought to be able to say to the people, this is not going to be popular, but this is what we're going to have to do to save our country. You have to make those hard decisions. McGovern, Democrat, for the people. The people are paying for this campaign with their hard-earned dollars. Send what you can to McGovern for President, Washington, D.C. New York, you stay tuned for Lester Smith. He's got the news. News in detail on the hour from the WOR newsroom. Allied field reports in South Vietnam reported today that communist forces have cut the two most important roads to Saigon. 35 miles south of the capital, a road to the Mekong Delta was blocked. 25 miles to the north, the other road was cut. Hundreds of civilians were caught in a crossfire as government soldiers battled the communist troops for control of the route north of Saigon. Military officials are speculating that it could be an enemy move to isolate Saigon before the United States presidential election next month. Farther away from Saigon, they're still fighting around on luck. The most severe battles today took place there, 60 miles north of the capital. Despite reports to the contrary, the United States military command in Saigon says the F-111 fighter bombers will remain on combat duty. Yesterday, military officials released a report that one of the $15 million swing-wing planes had crashed at an unknown location on its first combat mission over North Vietnam. The F-111s went back to the Indochina War five days ago after a 1968 withdrawal because three of them had crashed because of mechanical failures. 
President Nixon's health, education, welfare, and labor appropriations feud with Congress may have gotten a new log on the fire as the Senate approved a bill tonight that is almost a duplicate of the one Mr. Nixon vetoed in August. The latest appropriation is a $1.7 billion over the president's budgeted figure, and in his last veto, Mr. Nixon said the $30 billion total amounted to reckless federal spending. The new measure does allow Mr. Nixon to withhold $935 million from individual programs of his choice. This is provided that no one program is cut more than 10%. Senator George McGovern was in New York and in Boston today to tell all who would listen that President Nixon is failing to control street crime. McGovern called for creation of neighborhood crime prevention programs to provide more money for foot patrolmen, tenant patrols, and other measures in the nation's 25 largest cities to cut crime offenses. In Boston, the Democratic presidential candidate accused the Nixon administration of being morally corrupt. And McGovern said the president's implication that he was responsible for the 20% Social Security increase was a fraud. McGovern noted that Mr. Nixon had opposed the increase that Congress had passed. Stop tearing your country apart, said Vice President Agnew today, and recognize your enemies. Agnew, speaking to several Vietnam veterans against the war who were at a Republican campaign rally in Fort Wayne, Indiana. They interrupted Mr. Agnew's speech with the question, how many bombs did you drop today? The Washington Post reported today that the FBI has established that high Republican officials had ordered a major political campaign of spying and sabotage against the Democrats to reassure President Nixon's re-election this year. And as part of that campaign, said the Post, the Democratic National Headquarters was bugged with electronic surveillance equipment last June. That was the so-called Watergate affair. But according to the newspaper, that was only one phase of a much more ambitious effort by the Republican hierarchy. Details from ABC's Sam Donaldson. The Post says the espionage operation on the president's behalf was called the Offensive Security Program. It began in 1971, according to the newspaper, and was aimed first at the major contenders for the Democratic presidential nomination. Its goal, infiltration and subversion. The Post reports that a former Treasury Department lawyer, Donald Segretti, attempted to recruit at least three persons as agent provocateurs. Senator George McGovern, campaigning in Detroit, was asked about the new bugging charges, and here's what he had to say. The essential point of this uh, story, as I understand it, is that the uh, Watergate case is a part of a large network of wiretapping of that kind that's been going on. And, of course, this is the warning I've been giving about the Watergate thing, that it's not an isolated incident. That, that a political agency that will wiretap the uh, headquarters of a national party, they're not going to hesitate to wiretap a businessman or a lawyer or a doctor or a labor leader or a university or even a private home. And this is the thing the American people have to understand about the significance of this Watergate case. Hello, Mr. President. How'd your day go? Well, let's you see. Did you see uh, McNamara? Yes, and he's uh, getting some staff work done. Good, good. Right. Every bloody thing we told the artist this morning is on Marvin Kalk this evening. I can't believe it. Yeah. Like what? You mean like... Uh, well, we've agreed on a standstill ceasefire, which means, in effect, that they, uh, each party controls its own area, and that, in turn, so all that's left now is to get you's approval. You did. 
Rogers or Sullivan. I think that is. I can't believe he'd do it. Normally not, but I guess he's just determined not to be the guy who was left out this time. It doesn't make any difference, Mr. President. There's so much... Cobb has been wrong so often, Henry. I mean, there's so much speculation that no one believes it anyway. Yeah, but, uh, but you rather think this came from them, huh, Henry? No question. It's too accurate. Stay tuned for Lester Smith and the News. This is the news in detail on the hour from the WOR Newsroom. Vice President Spiro Agnew spoke here in New York City tonight at the 10th Annual Fundraising Dinner of the State Conservative Party at the Hotel Hilton. Agnew walked into the hotel through a couple of hundred demonstrators with whom he cracked jokes. Inside the hotel, Agnew took out after Democratic candidate for president, Senator George McGovern, accusing McGovern of making anything but reasonable remarks during the current campaign. And Agnew declared, But Senator McGovern's rhetoric in this campaign has been anything but reasonable. He has accused the President of the United States of barbarism and foolhardiness in his Vietnam policy. He has said that the President, and I quote him, shows a greater commitment to bombing the children of Asia than to building the human potentials of our own children in America. He has likened our president to Hitler, likened this country to Nazi Germany, and the Republican Party to the Ku Klux Klan. Think of what he must think of you. So that is the way in which George McGovern has appealed to reason in this campaign. Now, as you know, I've been accused on occasion of using strong political rhetoric. Yes, I have. But compared to Senator McGovern's venomous rhetoric, my statements look like something out of the pages of Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. During a campaign swing through the Pacific Northwest, Senator McGovern called for the creation of a so-called ethics in government plan to look into charges of improper activities by members of the executive branch of government, including aides of the president. The Simlinger Survey Organization says it's taken a telephone poll which shows that McGovern has cut into President Nixon's huge lead, but only slightly. The agency says that based on a sample of 2,311 persons between September 29th and the 5th of this month, Mr. Nixon has 60.5% of the vote to 21% for McGovern, with 18.5% undecided. Albert Sindlinger, the head of the agency, notes what he calls a surprising 2 and one tenth percent increase in the number of undecided voters from the previous week. With Mr. Nixon led 62 and one tenth percent to McGovern for 21 and a half, with 16 and one tenth percent undecided. 
Sindlinger attributes much of the increase in undecided voters to persons who've changed their minds about sitting out the election, but who haven't yet made up their minds about whom they want for president. The survey agency also says that a poll of some 75,000 junior and high school students conducted by Scholastic magazine showed President Nixon leading with 67% to 25% for McGovern. Hello? Yes, sir. Well, looks uh, coming to me last night about 3 o'clock that, uh, that we got them right down, almost had them on the ropes, and they got away. Yep, yep, they got off the hook. Well, that's... The, house, the house got mad at the center. Yeah, they booted. it. Yeah. <laughs> they did last a couple years ago, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's all right. We just, uh, we just can't worry about these things and make the best of it. I'm going to finesse the question of uh, the water quality bill today by saying that uh, it obviously has a relationship to the spending ceiling. That's right. And that uh, there will be Good. no written conference report for us to examine until midnight tonight, so it's we'll just premature. Yeah. You, can, you can say you talked to me about it today. All right. The president said that in view of the fact that he, had not been, he did not want to make the decision until he saw the written conference report and studied all the legal implications and saw what really happened in the debt ceiling. <laughs>
Right. And that you've been speaking out affirmatively on welfare reform for years, right. and that uh, this is obviously high priority. It's one of your six great goals, yeah. and so on, so forth. Right. Without getting specific. Health reform, welfare reform, right, right, right. Then uh, the only other uh, obvious problem is going to be the whole Watergate grain deal, Chapin. Yeah, you know, that whole that. That's all the story on that. Yeah. How are you going to handle that? Well, I, I, I'm of mixed minds, but I thought uh, one approach would be to attack the Post for picking on a fine, clean, upstanding, patriotic young man who's come to Washington and, and uh, done his part. There, done it with, why don't you use the word McCarthyism? Well, I had that in mind. You know, yeah. the thing that lives in my recollection, I don't know how many people around the country will recall, is old Welch. Yeah. Uh, protecting his young colleague when uh, McCarthy yeah. attacked him yeah. and saying, Senator, there's just no depth to which you won't think to hurt right. me, That's right. and uh, you've attacked a fine young man, all that. Uh, it seemed to me that, that I could get at this yellow hearsay so journal. I've attacked that. The other thing I would I would do, if I could strongly urge it, is to say that the, uh, it said that for the that the shocking double standard of the Post and the New York Times use that line. All right. got it. Yep. And say, that uh, here they are, here they are, uh, they, uh, in, in terms of being absolutely mum about the dirtiest campaign ever waged against the president in history. Uh-huh. Have you got that chapter and verse? Yeah, the, the I've got all those things. Here. Just put about, put about eight of them. They call right. them Hitler, they right. call them the most corrupt president. Right. Don't say the most corrupt administration, just, you know, shorthanded. Right. The most corrupt, the most devious, you know, and go down that. And here... They don't. There's not never been an editorial raising a question about that. There's never been any reaction at all about that kind of dirty campaigning. It's the dirtiest campaign ever waged by a presidential or vice presidential candidate against a president. Never say against a candidate, against a president, because that's true. Because the Blaine Cleveland one was dirtier. They, uh, it was a different bag of tea. They neither was president at that time. Okay. Uh, and then that, that, what, what are, where is this? Mm-hmm. And also, and uh, and I'm not getting the bombing of headquarters. And the uh, they haven't said they haven't said a word about the bombing of headquarters, the the main violence. You yeah. know, yeah. I, I I would always attack. All right. And then, but also you can defend a little. Yeah. And I see you got a big story in the Los Angeles Times about that you gave out apparently on the. On the California property, I you, you, do, you do anything to get the publicity, don't you? <laughs> Not I, sir. <laughs> uh, what is, is I that the same as the New York Times? Uh, New York Times guy. Well, I haven't seen the LA Times. No, no, I'm referring to New York Times. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Turner, they, Turner, they, Turner is there. I haven't talked to Turner, but I call our hatchet man. Yeah, um, uh, they were on this. Turner's been trying to get me all week, and I've refused to return his calls. Yeah, but uh, it's uh, uh, something else may come up, and I'll I'll just. Lay that off. Well, I mean, no problem. It's uh, it seemed to me that the whole story was pretty pretty flimsy. If I read the New York Times, if I can't obfuscate that one, yeah, I uh, yeah wasted my time for you twenty years. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, all the business about the, I think if anything comes up about the, the, the amount of money that is spent on the property, none of that was my approval. Well, more than, I, a lot more of them that I can labels I didn't want. They put up, you know what I mean. I can, that I, didn't want. I can turn that very nicely on Shriver. Yeah. You mean about what? Uh, about the fact that uh, he's refused to disclose his wife's trust. Right. And uh, McGovern's got some kind of a... But indicating that there's nothing that's, uh, nothing here we haven't disclosed. That's right. Because that's, that's right. I went into all of that at the time that's of the accident. Absolutely. Robert net worth already has. Yep. And that you went into it and you covered it. And it's shocking that a paper that is all the news that the print were doing solely on the basis of 
right, sir. In 1967, Senator George McGovern said he was not an advocate of unilateral withdrawal of our troops from Vietnam. Now, of course, he is. Last year, the senator suggested regulating marijuana along the same lines as alcohol. Now he is against legalizing it and says he always has been. Last January, Senator McGovern suggested a welfare plan that would give a $1,000 bill to every man, woman, and child in the country. Now, he says, maybe the $1,000 figure isn't right. Throughout the year, he has proposed unconditional amnesty for all draft dodgers. Now his running mate claims he proposed no such thing. In Florida, he was pro-busing. In Oregon, he said he would support the anti-busing bill then in Congress. Last year, this year. The question is, what about next year? This is about the government. This is about credibility. This is about electronics. This is about bugging. This is about spying. This is about thievery. This is about espionage. This is about lying. This is about payoffs. This is about contradiction. This is about special deals. This is about falsification. This is about testimony. This is about wheat deals. This is about hiding. This is about dishonesty. This is about sabotage. This is about secrecy. This is about stealing. This is about hidden funds. This is about deception. This is about the White House. And this is how you stop it. With your vote. your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone can embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Did you get a whiff of the dirty tricks in the in the? In well, the... we yes, we saw certain things done. I remember we had a big rally scheduled in uh, Los Angeles one Sunday to try to reach concentrated black audiences, uh, and we uh, we uh, 
worked on all of the black churches in central Los Angeles. We did it very well. We had handbills that were given to everybody going to church that morning. Uh, we had picnics organized after the church hours uh, in which people were invited to attend. And we worked it rather systematically. I expected to have maybe 25 or 30,000 people uh, out coming out after church to attend these various things, and I would go around and speak to three or four different groups. Well, during the night, Saturday night, uh, early evening, uh, a battery of phone calls was made to all the churches saying that the rallies had been canceled and that uh, George McGovern would not be able to appear that until further notice there would be no such rallies. Well, that was all done by people sabotaging our our campaign. Nobody showed up. I, uh, I turned up at the rallies and and there was almost no one there. But we had a number of things like that happen. Um, I don't say it cost us the election, but it, they were worrisome and, and, uh, and harmful. Uh, but I didn't really see the main uh, unfolding of the whole Watergate scenario until after the election when the investigations I have two questions on that. One was, you did, though, see evidence that somebody had tried to break into your headquarters. Oh, yes. We knew about that. Could you tell us that story? Well, uh, I was uh, disappointed the way that story was received. It appeared in the Washington Post, not in other news media, but in the Washington Post. It was just a little story, one column wide and maybe that long. And it just said that... Uh, during the night, um, apparently political workers had uh, broken into Democratic headquarters, that they had been apprehended and were being held. Um, and at that time, Mike Mansfield was the majority leader of the Senate, and he had a habit for about five minutes before the Senate went into session each day uh, he would stand down in the well of the House of the Senate and field a few questions from reporters. And one of them said, Mr. President, um, uh, did you read the story in this morning's Washington Post that burglars had broken into Democratic headquarters? What do you think is the significance of that? And Mike said, well, I saw the story, but that kind of nonsense goes on in every campaign just sort of tossed it off. Uh, I was uh, I was really flabbergasted I, because I thought it was serious, and I thought for the majority leader of the Democrats to dismiss it as of no consequence was a, a mistake. I still do. What about there, there? There was also an attempt to break into your headquarters. They came to my headquarters uh, a couple of nights earlier. Uh, I uh, I was out on the hustings, and uh, I wasn't aware of that until some time later. But uh, uh, even to this day, I had to depend on what the Nixon people said 
to get the story on that J. Gordon Liddy in his book, which he calls Will, uh, not the not meaning of the male name Will, but meaning willpower. He um, he tells about how he went out behind my headquarters and hid in an alley and uh, shot out the lights around our headquarters so it would be dark for a, a raid that he intended to carry out later that night. But <clears throat> what happened was that these McGovern people worked all night and there were still people in there working up until 4.30 in the morning. And he finally, after sitting out there in the trees and the shrubbery all night long without any chance to break into our headquarters, finally decided these McGovern people are hopeless and he gave up on it. And it was a couple of nights later that they decided to hit the Democratic National Headquarters rather than my headquarters. Tell us, you tried to make an issue out of the uh, Democratic National Com uh, the Watergate break-in in the campaign, but you, it didn't take. I tried my best to do it. I would describe these burglars with their rubber gloves on and their uh, burglar kits stealing into our headquarters in the dead of nights, some of them carrying passes for the White House. And I said, how can we ignore this? This had to be something that the, either the White House or the president was tied in with. How could seven men go in to undertake something like this, two of them carrying White House entry passes, and the president not know anything about it? Who authorized this? And I kept calling on the press uh, to dig into this, calling on the Congress to dig into it. You couldn't get anybody to move except these two cub reporters for the Washington Post, Woodward and Bernstein. But since it was held only one paper, and one that was generally regarded as liberal and sympathetic to Democrats, you couldn't get the main press to take it very seriously until after the election when the Watergate investigation began. Mr. President, yeah. I have Dr. Kissinger returning your call. All right. Go ahead, please. Mr. President, how are you getting along in your briefing? Well, I've uh, had, a, I've had an hour with Abrams, Abrams, and he's fully aboard, enthusiastically aboard. That's very important. And, and he's coming in, and he's leaving tomorrow night. He thinks he needs a day to work with Bunker. And yeah. he's full of ideas of how we can do this technically. Yeah. And, you know, how to shift over the air control and so yeah. forth. Yeah. Let me ask a couple of questions. And we, yeah. uh, I was really very hard by him. I read him all the provisions of the military. Side. Right. What about the government? What about the political side? Uh, I have told him any of that, but that's yeah. no good. I'm using that over as a club by telling them what they're all proposing. Yeah, I see. He'll go along to the political side. Yes. Mm -hmm. The political side is a smashing picture. I mean, there's no, there will be no one who will question the political side. Yeah, the only problem I see there is, uh, from our standpoint, is uh, which I want to be sure we're 
adequately warned on is is the use of the word coalition in any any form, shape, whatever. That meant, oh, I know it isn't in that, but I meant in terms of the of what the press says, what the public, what the what is said by either side, and so forth. The uh, the point being, the point being, I don't mean what the other side says, but we'll say the point being that once that is said, then the indication will be by our our, our critics that well that we, we could have gotten this four years ago. You see, the coalition business. That's why the coalition thing is has got to be it's got to be uh, in your own briefing. If we come to a briefing, it's got to be very very tough. This is not a coalition government under any circumstances. Nothing changes anyway. The only thing that happens immediately on the political side is a negotiation between you and the others. I understand that. I understand that there's a Council of National Concord that they are going to come into being until you has negotiated it with the other side. Right. And basically that is not a government either. But the point is, right? Right. Oh, right. Yeah. But the point that I make is that, as you can see, that is the point that has to be very carefully We've got to be straight arming on that issue so that we don't uh, uh, run into any problem there. Right. Right. But that, I am confident that the political side is an excellent I mean, in fact, there is nobody in this country who could imagine that you could get this political side. Yeah. Well, that's my feeling. It's my feeling. It's my feeling. I mean, it's the thinnest space saver. regard to the questions you raised earlier with um, Bob, uh, let me just run over it briefly because I made a few, had a few thoughts on that last night. First, to keep it all in perspective, we should understand that uh, that the major consideration should be uh, the, uh, the making of a settlement. But, uh, the making of a settlement is not going to hurt us in the election, and it isn't going to help us significantly. Uh, you know, uh, uh, who can tell? But the main point is, what could hurt, really, is is to go down the road and then uh, and then fail. Right. Uh, that is why uh, I think uh, even before going to Saigon, I would I think we have to be fairly fairly sure that uh, well, not fairly sure, but at least have a pretty good chance of making it go. If you go to Saigon and it doesn't go, of course. Then, I mean, you, you can't really consider going to Hanoi because if you do, that escalates it to a point where we just couldn't, uh, we just couldn't stand it. But if you could go there, and I don't know, but what uh, you think Abrams can do a little softening up before you get there? That's the point. No, no, but he and Bunker can can start analyzing. You see, after we get to the agreement, yeah, there'll have to be a hell of a lot of work done. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And he could then focus you not on how he's going to stonewall the agreement, but how is he going to shift certain categories of things, uh, who is going to take them over, and so forth. Right, right, right. What does Bunker think? What's his view about whether, well, he doesn't know what the political thing is, but what is his view about Q's reaction to this? I haven't checked him that person yet. But we have. At least you have Bunker's reaction. I don't mean Bunker's. I mean, I don't mean that. I meant Abrams's view. Well, Abrams says it's hard to predict. Yeah. He thinks that you ought to accept it, that this is a great opportunity for him. Right. He's enthusiastic. Right. Right. 
And on the political side, uh, we are in, uh, I assure you, Mr. President, there's no sophistication will not see that there's a definite form of base favor for the other. Right, right. Few states, there's no coalition government, the negotiations start, then they form a sort of a half-assed committee. I know. Uh, if it ever comes into being. Right. Right. Uh, but, so, we've had another little message from the North Korea right. yeah. last night, dreaming about the five trains or something. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. if the thing could fall apart on Tuesday, yeah. in that case, of course, I come back from Paris. Right. Uh, the thing could fall apart in Saigon. In that case, I come back from Saigon. I agree completely that I should. You can't escalate that that high because otherwise you're, then, then we're at the fats in the fire and it'll appear as if Q is the people, the person that torpedoed it. I agree. Yeah. And I incidentally, on the other side, I don't, there need be no concern about the political effect. We just can't think in terms of the fact, well, gee, would it be better not to have this politically? Sure, it's risky. We don't need it. Uh, we're going to win without it uh, and very heavily. But the point is that you've got to take a risk to get the damn war over. And if, the, uh, and if there's more, if, there, if this is the best settlement we can get, which I think it is, and if this is the best time when the forces will be the strongest to get it, then the thing to do is to push it and get it. That's my attitude. Right. You see, right. we're in this, we're in that situation where, uh, where we just got it. So what it really comes down to, Henry, is the merit of the settlement. If it's the right settlement and this is the best time, do it now. I would if it's the right settlement and we should do it at a later time, put it off later. The, as far as what as the election is concerned, don't be bothered with it either way. There's only one thing in the election, as I say, and it would not be fatal. And that would be to have, have uh, either Q or the North Vietnamese to blow it. And of course, if the one risk we run is at one point that Mel made to me was when I went into all the refinements we were getting, he said, listen, you have to face one thing. If they offer us to deal publicly, yeah. you'll be forced to accept it without refinement. I agree that. That's why I mean I'm not sure how far you can really insist on the refinements. So, uh, yes, and so you do the best you can. We know that, just like you did in Shanghai. Now, from a security point of view, Mr. President, there's absolutely no question that we'd be better off six weeks from now when, uh, if these guys in Fluid forever would get off their asses. They aren't going to. Uh, but it's a high-risk thing, because six weeks from now, the other side may feel that they can hold us up every that string us along the way they've done for three years right. in the negotiation. Right. Right. And as you said, there is a time for settling. Always. Always. Uh, it is, if you, the horrible tragedy is that if General Tree had survived yeah. last year, we would be throwing our hat up in the, hats up in the air because then the situation in every military region, it is excellent. Right. And in three, it should be good. There are two divisions that I bet have lost 100 men in the whole offensive that have never fought and that have never moved off their dubs. Right. Right. That's what breaks your heart, isn't it? It sure does. Well, in any event. You can't be sure that they'd be moving off their behinds in the next six months. Mm -hmm. No, but we're not too sure what the North Vietnamese can do. No, look, they, the main factor is that they 
From everything I can see and from what you have said, the North Vietnamese are under great, great pressures to settle to. Now, what I'm doing this morning, Mr. President, in the interest of speed, I've asked Sabrina to come in. Yeah. And I'm giving him a letter from you to Brezhnev. Right. Saying that if we could get some assurances about the cutoff of military aid. Right. I mean, not cutoff, but restraint. Like restraining like we do, basically. That's right. Same restraints. Then we would be in a good position to... Uh, very good. Uh, ...to speed up the settlement. Right. Right. It was very interesting. I told you this. He came in yesterday and read me the table that he had had from the North Vietnamese, where we stood in the negotiation. Yeah. Yeah. And it was pretty accurate, except that Clive Bassett put in something that was still unsettled and not already settled. Yeah. So that yeah. they can claim some victory. Sure. Sure. That's always the case in settlements, but it's irrelevant. Once you settle, people have a heave a sigh of relief in the end, believe me. A sigh of relief. The damn thing's got to be brought to an end, Henry. I, uh, That's what we really come down to. And and so I know that, uh, you know, all these political considerations, you just don't think of those. Except except for the one point, at saying not to think about it, don't let political considerations delay it. The only thing is, remember that the main, that, that we have no... Uh, we had no pressures to push it. Either way, either way, uh, we had no pressures to make a settlement, uh, and so you do it on the merits, which is a pretty good position for you to be in. Absolutely. You do it on the merits. And uh, the other point is that uh, the one hooker, of course, is that we cannot have a collapse in South Vietnam prior to the election. That would be helpful. That would be harmful. I don't, I don't think it would be. I mean, Pew isn't going to blow it that high, would he? No, if he, uh, frankly, if he blows it, I've got to go. I've got to come back. I don't okay. think he should push it to a to come back. Where would you come to, then? Then I'll get Lee Duck go back to Paris and one more meeting with him. And tell him, don't move on it after Lee Duck. Yeah. It's an unsatisfactory way of doing it, because then they'll sit in their turn, don't they? Yeah. See, there, you, you do run the risk, too, that they might decide to go public yep. and uh, and say two is at fault. However, that's dangerous for them, too, because uh, even with that, we're not going to lose. <laughs> okay. Well, it's, uh, it's one other thing I told Bob this morning that would be a possible compromise that might have to be done. You know, two is absolutely adamant. Uh, or if he wants to save his face uh, and wants to be able to pretend he had some role, I might have to come back from there and then start the whole circuit again once more with the North Vietnamese right. in Paris so that we can right. pretend his changes were taken into account. Right. Go to Saigon right. and then to Hanoi. And then to Hanoi. That would make right. that would delay the thing a week. Like six days. Yeah. No, six days. That'd be no problem. It has some advantages, but uh, on the other hand, you just do whatever. You make the deal do it now. If you can't, do the next best thing. Right. And it's going to be tough, Teddy. Be better for you to do the later. Henry, don't even think of the politics. Let me say, either has an advantage. Yeah. Doing a little earlier doesn't. Uh, well, no. Either way, politically, politically, it would have an advantage, and only in the sense of the merits, because between October first and November the seventh, there isn't so much time for it to blow. Right. That's the only point that I see there. But that's on the merits again. Right. So just do it on the merits. Everything's on the merits. Oh. The hell with politics. And 
if I can have that flexibility, that I'll. I understand. I might go on that round on that circuit again. Right. Right. I understand that. But you should have that flexibility, and uh, and just uh, keeping it all in terms of just discussing the matter. Right. But I think I'm I'm really uh, I really feel that we just got to push this now for all it's worth, and uh, and make it if we can. Right. All right, good luck. Goodbye. They dropped the demand that you had to resign on October 8th, I believe it was, at any rate, whenever they put forward their comprehensive proposal. And that, as far as we were concerned, was the breakthrough. I think that the uh, uh, principal uh, element that, that we uh, brought to it was that we were prepared uh, to settle for a ceasefire in place uh, and the return of our prisoners of war in exchange for the removal of our military uh, forces. As you recall, as you recall, I made the decision to mine the harbors, to bomb military targets in North Vietnam, that decision was the right decision. Those who predicted that it would lead to the dissolution of the summit, the leaders of the media, the great editors and publishers and television commentators and the rest, proved to be wrong. When that decision was made, there was precious little support from any of the so-called opinion leaders of this country that I have just described. But what was the most heartwarming thing to me was that those who had so much at stake, those who had suffered so much, the great majority of those whose husbands and loved ones are POWs or MIA stood by that decision. And I thank you very much for that support. Thank you. 
follow up on that, will you? Because uh, now is the time to hit them. I mean, uh, you know, always before ceasefires, that's when you run your offensives. They are, and we've got to. Exactly. Now, are the South Vietnamese getting off their butts a bit or not? Is they it, are. They're moving very, every place is satisfactory, but except where this goddamn men is. Yeah. Other places are taking back everything that they've lost. And That's the stuff. That's the stuff. Okay. Well, he's on the ground and with you right now. Yeah. 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 All right. You keep me in constant touch, will you? Yes, sir. Right. I'm just trying, Al, to keep Henry from getting out on a limb here and then having it sawed off. You know, exactly. Now, I've, you know, I've hit him with about three cold towels during the night. Right. And That's he's right. got it and has, has conveyed these instructions. The other side. Good, good, good. I'll too. I think you're what you had told Bob. He reported to me when you said, Look, if he wants to settle, they'll settle. If they don't want to settle, they won't. So, therefore, uh, what we have to do is to put it to them as hard as we can. And if they don't settle, then we'll settle after the election. That's right. I also have this feeling. I think your, your position after the election is stronger than before. Our position is. Right. Well, after the election, there is no, we have no. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. 
And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.